Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. It's truly an honor to be talking to John Chambers, Chairman Emeritus at Cisco. He served as the company's CEO for more than two decades. He has worked closely with government leaders from around the world, serving on committees for two U.S. presidents and earning the first ever Clinton Global Citizen Award, as well as the Woodrow Wilson Award for Corporate Citizenship. He is also the founder of a cool new thing he's got going called JC2 Ventures, where he'll be helping disruptive startups to scale and lead market transitions. John, as, as I said before, the microphone turned on. This is a thrilling moment for me. I've, I've followed you and both Cisco's paths for a very long time, so it's truly an honor to be uh, speaking to you. Welcome to AMA Edgewise. Dave, it's going to be a lot of fun, and, and many of your listeners are where I grew up in terms of first-time managers or second-level managers. And the good news is I've seen every movie there is to see, and I've done some things right, and I've made some mistakes, uh-huh. and I have the scars. But I've learned to manage through those transitions. So if I do my job right and your audience comes away with one thing that they can really use in terms of their career, I've accomplished my end of the responsibilities today. So it'll be fun. And you take me wherever you want to go. We're speaking specifically about your new book. It's called Connecting the Dots, subtitled Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. John, some of the most interesting books I read from business leaders and thought leaders start with compelling personal stories or stories of home or a family or stuff like that. And I have to tell you, it's weird to read a book like yours where one of the very first stories you share is the fishing story because I have, not so ironically, a very similar story where at the age of eight years old, I'm standing in Salmon Creek, which feeds into Cayuga Lake in upstate New York, and I'm attempting to smelt fish with my dad. And that's a lot. It's not poles, but it's nets. And I'm in my first pair of, of hip waders, And I'm out there eight years old in the freezing cold at 11 o'clock at night waiting for these stupid little silver fish to swim by so I can scoop them up. And you're Uh, having the time of your life. And it was amazing. I'm out there with my big brother and my dad and the whole nine yards. And then, John, I slip off the rock I'm standing on and I begin to float downstream. And my dad and my brother jump out and they run along the shore. And a very similar thing happened to me that happened to you. My dad yells, don't let go of the net. Just hang on to the net. And I'm like, thinking similar to what you did in your story, I'm like, okay, if that's what you want. But the, the, the end result is, I think, something very similar to yours. And if you don't mind, just share, what, what's the important lesson learned, to the, in your case, in the, in the fishing story, if you don't mind just sharing it with the audience? And interestingly enough, our parents train us all of our lives in many ways. And I was about six years old. I was fishing in a river called Elk River with rather fast rapids. And I was a good swimmer for a six-year-old, but I was a six-year-old. And my dad uh, was teaching me how to fish, and we were working, and he just reminded me, do not go very far off the rocks or in the rapids. You get swept away, and it's a very dangerous section of the river. And he was fishing about 100 yards above me. And I did what he told me not to do. I slipped off the rocks, and I went into this fast water, And your immediate reaction is, oh, my gosh, I could potentially drown. And my dad started yelling, hold on to the fishing pole, hold on to the fishing pole. And he started running down the bank, and I was getting churned in the water. And each time I came up and got a grasp of air, he was yelling to hold on to the fishing pole. And it wasn't a very nice pole. (laughs) He was worried about the fishing pole. He obviously wasn't worried about me drowning. So I focused with both hands holding on the fishing pole and come up and grasp air. And I can still see him in my mind today, running down through this edge of the river with the water splashing everywhere, 
to where he could intersect me downriver and swim out and get me and pull me out of the water. And when he pulled me out, we sat and he talked with me about how important it is to, when you fall into the rapids, to be calm and don't try to swim against a current you can't win against. Deal with the world the way it is. Wait for an opportunity to work your way over to the side and don't panic. Just stay very concentrated and get your feet out in front of you. And then he, after I was calmed down, put me back into the water and let me swim there in this very fast water and taught me how to get out of it. Then he put me back fishing, and he never told Mom this, but he, he went another 100, 200 yards up the river to send the message he trusted me that I'd learned how to do that. Mm-hmm. And like you, our parents teach us by lessons learned. Mm-hmm. And I've learned you tell stories to get people to realize that under stress, leadership, doesn't matter if you're leading two people or 200,000, that's when you have to be very calm and you have to stay focused on the end result and not swim against the tide you can't win, but learn to go to the side. Yours was even more dangerous because I, I do fish all over the world, and when you have waders on, it isn't just swimming with the current. The water fills into your waders, yeah. and it takes you straight to the bottom. Yeah. And so your ability to learn from that and go forward is a good lesson learned, and it's about leadership. And the key takeaway is leaders are made. They write about us about our successes, what you did at Accenture, what you did at Pepsi, what you do at AMA, or what I did at Cisco or at Wang or IBM. But it's really how you handle the challenges and your setbacks when disaster hits and how calm you are as a leader and how you navigate the challenges and lead your team out of that water, and then teach them from the experience. So it was a fun way to start the book, and one that hopefully people who read it out of your audience will both enjoy and have a couple of key takeaways. Excellent. So I can't think of a better person to ask this question to. What is the John Chambers definition of a connected leader? Uh, I think it is a definition of a leader who... Literally, and the fact that I'm in networking has nothing to do with this. It really has to do with how you are tied together, most important to your customers, meeting their needs, their expectations, understanding their challenges and their concerns with your own people, your employees. And for me, it was a family at Cisco where I knew every one of the illnesses that was life-threatening of the employee, their spouse, or their children, and we were there for them like no one else connected to your employees, both to be able to motivate them and challenge them and occasionally give them constructive feedback, connected to your shareholders and your investors and making sure that it's a win-win for them and understanding their concerns, even when they're perhaps more short-term than they should be in terms of expectations, and then to partners and your ecosystem. And how you think about this is a true win-win with your partners and how they win when you have a discussion, as well as the ecosystem players. And a connect leader who does this right connects to all four of those groups and understands they are not separate, but if done right, they come together in terms of a vision of where you go. That's my definition of a connected leader. In your experience, because culture is a weird thing, it's a fickle thing in organizations, in your experience, where do organizational cultures go wrong. Is there a a common misstep that organizations make on the cultural front? There absolutely is. And the first one, and to be very candid, Dave, when I became CEO, I didn't really put that much importance on culture. And so as a leader, it doesn't matter if you're CEO of the company or a first-line leader in a small company or a big company, your job is to set the vision and strategy to accomplish your area responsibility 
in a way that your team understands it and that your management understands it. The second thing is to build your team around you, both develop them, recruit, and unfortunately occasionally to change some of them. The third thing is to focus on culture, and the fourth thing is to be able to communicate to all your constituencies, as we discussed in your first question. Culture is the one that I underestimated how important it was, even though I did a lot of things culturally that ended up being the strength of Cisco. And then I began to formalize in the playbooks, if you will, how do you build a great culture. And so if you would have told me 25 years ago when I first became a manager, culture was as important as strategy and vision, or maybe even more, I would have said no, and I would have been wrong. I've learned that culture, you never have a great segment of a company or a great company, regardless of its size, without a very strong culture. And it's one that I spend the most time communicating with the young leaders that I mentor. And I talk to probably 40 different leaders a month from people that lead large organizations to people that lead two people. But I focus on how do you build culture. Common missteps is for when you read the culture, it's something somebody took out of a textbook writes it down, and puts it in a drawer. So you've got to walk the talk of the culture. Nothing breaks down quicker than the leader says, this is the culture, and here's what we're going to do, and we're going to put customers first, and we're going to treat people with respect, and we're going to make innovation happen, and we're going to be a family, if you will, and we're just going to do the right thing, and then the leader doesn't walk that talk. The second thing is they make culture so complex you really don't understand it. And it took me a while to realize I had to net it down to key words that people understand. And then almost every meeting that I was in, from even before I became CEO, I would always work in elements of the culture, either subtly or very directly, so that I would walk the talk and I had to lead by example. When an employee was sick, I would literally, or their child was sick, I'd take a call on Christmas Eve and see how I could help them. And I was there for them all the way through, not just on a transaction, but going through it. And so if a customer had a problem, I was there for them. And this one, probably for all your listeners, might be the most important takeaway. You build relationships for life with your customers. You sell them only what they need. But you also, when they have a problem, whether it's something you unfortunately created for them or it happened from other circumstances, if you help them through that problem, you build trust for life. And the currencies of the future are literally trust, track record, and true tight relationships. And so it is so important to build that culture. Where companies go wrong, there's no better example than Uber. They had a culture, and the culture actually is what got them in trouble. The other thing that goes wrong is the leader said, here's our culture, and then she or he does not walk it. The other thing that goes wrong is you don't regularly reinforce it. And if done right, everybody who's hiring in your company, and if you're the first-line manager, you should understand your culture. If somebody doesn't fit your culture, don't hire them. And while I did 180 acquisitions, I would not acquire a company that wasn't very similar to our culture mm -hmm. because it's very difficult to change a culture, even if it's a small company. It's, it's great that you, you did bring up acquisitions because another great question to ask John Chambers is, well, okay, what is the secret to a great business acquisition? The secret is to have a replicatable playbook and go in with the understanding that most acquisitions will fail. In technology acquisitions, at least 80% probably 90% fail. And as every company that you're talking to and leader that you're talking to becomes a technology company, it doesn't matter today if you're in retail, manufacturing, healthcare, 
government, you will become a technology and digital organization, which means that speed of change will be just like technology companies. So my rule of thumbs to making an acquisition really work is to go in understanding they are very difficult, high failure rate. Mm -hmm. You make them work where you have a vision of what the acquisition can do for your company, and the acquisition agrees that's what they want to do. In other words, a shared vision of the role they'll play. Secondly, it's got to really be material to you because it is hard and it takes more time than you ever realize. The third is I would never acquire a company, no matter how good the financial fit was, if the cultures were not very similar. And the fourth is realize, at least in technology acquisitions, what you're acquiring is people and next-generation products. That is going to change for all companies. If you were to go back to a nation's bank many decades ago buying Bank of America, what they were buying was geography and customer relationships. And so that's what they protected. And by the way, most people left. When I acquired a company, I was acquiring engineers, salespeople, and next-generation product. And my attrition rate out of my acquired companies ran between 4 and 5%. Mm-hmm. And in high tech, it runs usually over 20% per year. I kept most all of the CEOs, the top leaders of the acquired companies for many years, many of them for over 20. And so I realized what I was acquiring and protected it. And you've got to have a culture that accepts outsiders and outside ideas. And don't kid yourself. If your culture within your company doesn't do that, and you can come up with a number of companies, Dave, that have tried to do acquisitions and it doesn't work because they reject the outsiders or the ideas and they fail. So those are some of the secrets, and I tried to hit that pretty hard. There's some things you and I will talk about today that I'm not as good on, and I'll, I'll tell you that. On acquisitions, having done 180 of them, I think most people in the industry would say we do it better than anyone else, but it's that replicatable playbook and then not violating the playbook. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Are you familiar with Seth Godin? Do you know who Seth Godin is? No, I do not. I apologize. That's okay. Seth, Seth Godin, he's kind of known in the internet community. He's an author, a thought leader, a marketer, a blogger. He's got something to say about pretty much everything. But one of the things he said, and we've interviewed him before, is he takes a stance with what should come first when a company goes to market or tries to do things. And his opinion is, and I'm not putting him out there as a thought leader. It's just interesting to talk about. Seth Godin says that it's more important for us companies, organizations, to find products and services for our customers than it is to find customers for our existing product offering. Do you agree with that? It's a good question. First, we're Googling him right now. I'm trying to look up his background as we go, and I'll look it up after the call. Sure. I'm getting a picture of him and his overall background uh, now. You know, this is one that, and, and, and by the way, it's a lesson learned for the young managers. What I just did was also buy time to think about my answer uh-huh. because I wasn't sure how I was going to answer it. So sure. you, you use a distraction technique <laughs> and then come back to it. And yeah. you're, you're not charging me for that advice, right? That's great. <laughs> mentor, I, I, at this stage in my next chapter of my life, it to me is all about coaching. And you know what it's like, Dave, to coach. When you coach a young leader and she or he becomes successful – it's like pride, and I don't want to draw a family-type example, but it absolutely is. It's, it's like the pride that your dad had in you, mm-hmm. the pride that I have in, in my son and my daughter. And when you coach and you see him be successful, it is key. I think it does start with the product, mm-hmm. so I believe that. And since I don't necessarily the writing, mm-hmm. however, I tie products very tightly to finding the right customers. Right. And so when I look at companies that I acquired, or equally as important, I probably 
talk to 40 different startup meetings a month, often two to 300 startups in total, and sometimes two to 300 in a week, the first thing I ask them is what is their product and what's their differentiation. And the second thing I ask them is what is their go-to-market strategy and who are their top customers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I go talk to the customers, and if the customers don't believe they're relevant and don't really back them strongly, I don't invest in the company, and I tell the young leader this is what they have to change. Mm -hmm. So while the product comes slightly in front of the customers, I actually put them almost in parallel, mm -hmm. and I do them at the same time mm -hmm. on that. Now, I'm fanatical about customer success. I paid everybody in Cisco for over 20 years on customer satisfaction. I don't think any other leader in the world does that. And I followed every critical account. In other words, a customer with a problem with my products that was serious every night, 365 days a year. So I tend to be customer-focused would be an understatement. Mm -hmm. The best of my knowledge, I've never had a customer that I could not go back and sell to later. I never sold them anything except what I thought they truly needed. And if they had a problem, regardless of whether it was my creation or others, I'd do whatever it took to help them through that, even including during the 2008 Great Recession at a time that you might say, John, having been through the 2001 tech bubble, what were you doing? I allowed the automotive companies around the world credit to purchase our equipment at a time that no one else was doing that. Mm -hmm. And I did it because they were a great partner for us, and they treated me very good over the years, so I was going to treat them good. Mm -hmm. By the way, they all made it out, and we had a relationship for life with every one of them. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we had the majority of the market share after that in all those companies. And so it goes back to, I think, product differentiation is key, but how you treat your customers is equally key. And if I give a data point to you that might support that, most people believe they provide good service to their customers and differentiated and superior capability. Yet when you survey the customers, less than 10% would say that about the company. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a market that has commodity-like behavior, that could be cars, that could be PCs, others, your key differentiation is how you have a consistency of interface to your customers. Mm -hmm. So if you don't put them first and don't have similar focus on customer experience and have a naive approach that you think you do a good job when your customers don't think you're differentiated. It's going to be hard to have your growth that you want and hard to have your profits that you want. It's interesting, but you also see the evolution, or at least I see external to Cisco, the evolution of the company and the evolution of that relationship with the customer. Quite clearly, we did an interview not too long ago with one of the senior executives of a consultancy called The Writer. And The Writer worked very closely with Cisco to help them turn their technical language and their technical jargon into stuff that's understandable to people reading at a fourth grade reading level. They worked with Cisco because Cisco understood this was a problem. Cisco took it upon themselves to make their technical documentation, make their website stuff, make the supporting materials and interactions with their customers so much more people-friendly. So uh, I see that, and that was a definite reflection of the focus on the customer. So that was uh, yet another time where we've brushed up against. Who, who owns the customer relationship? Who owns that? You've raised a, a series of really good concepts. To answer the last question first, uh, the customer relationship needs to be owned by your lead salesperson. And that's true even if you go through channels. They've got to have accountability. They have to represent the company. They have to not be non-transparent in saying, hey, that's the company's problem. I didn't get you the shipment. They have to take responsibility for it. Then the whole company has to feel that ownership behind the salesperson to make it happen. But to the point that you just made, you have to regularly revisit your complexity of your message to customers. When I deal with young startups, 
I talk to them about be able to get your elevator pitched down tightly, be able to make your product easy to use. When I first came to Cisco, I had a customer problem literally the first day at Cisco. I went down and tried to find our customer services group. Couldn't find them because there were only three of them. And when I got there, the customer services group explained to me that we like building products that only really smart people can make work because that's who bought the products in these universities and these companies. And I realized immediately the problem is that making your product so complex that the customer has to have, to your point, genius to be able to do it is not good, and you've got to make them more simple. And it's a constant battle because when you build very good products with key differentiation and when you have 65% gross margins, which we did, you've got to have really good differentiation. You, by definition, have complexity there, but you've got to hide that complexity from the user so that she or he can make it effective and you've got to regularly revisit it. So I like what you just said in the example that you said. And about the last thing I think we had to do with Cisco was we interviewed an executive at Cisco who was either responsible for or very close to being responsible for Cisco's endeavors into the Internet of Things, the IoT sector of the business. His name was Machek Kranz, and he's a terrific guy. You know, that's yet another place where the needs of the customer, the global audience, really has this thirst for this pressing business need for all of these devices and any piece of technology, in essence, to be, I don't want to call it self-aware. That's kind of a creepy thing to say, but, you know, at least able to communicate to the people who can help it or even service it or take care of it. So that was, that was pretty neat as well. It is. You know, what you're leading me to on this is something that I focus on very strongly for my 25 years at Cisco and now with all my startups. You compete not against competitors. You compete against market transitions, and they could be business model changes, changing customer expectations, or technology changes. And where it gets most exciting for me, i.e. the opportunity to really grow and disrupt others, is when they all three occur at the same time. And so when I came to Cisco, we were a technology company selling routers, and one of the first things I changed is that we focused not on our products, but the outcome we wanted. And I said the Internet would change the way you work, live, learn, and play. And even my marketing department hated it. But yet, that's what we did. Mm -hmm. And we focused on how you change people's lives and how you change business models, et cetera. And we moved from, quote, selling routers to selling routers and switches and voice and data center products and security and wireless to where we focused on outcomes. And so the ability to do that and catch market transitions are key. And the way that we beat our competitors was usually when they did not see a market transition. My competitors stayed building routers in silos or switches in silos or voice products in silos. We went across it and came horizontally after them. Mm -hmm. It is a world now that is going to get disrupted with tremendous speed. And if you aren't disrupting somebody, you're getting disrupted. And 40% of the large companies would disappear in the next decade, and 70% of the startups will. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have that edginess, the Silicon Valley edginess about you better be disrupting and you better be changing, reinventing yourself or you get left behind. But don't change for change's sake. Change with the market transitions. And then use the score of the game mm -hmm. in terms of the results. Really great coaches, regardless of sports, compete with a process an innovation playbook, if you will, and that's what I tried to say in my book as well, and then they adjusted slightly depending on which competitor they were playing. And the score was purely the indication of how well they executed on both together. So I would be very 
focused on catching the trends right. And what Magic basically did is we moved from the Internet and a period of the Internet era to the digital era, and with digitization going from literally 20 billion devices connected today to 500 billion, you're going to change every aspect of business and our personal lives with that. And intelligence in these devices are going to move to the edge. So how do you take that complexity out and make it easy to use Mm -hmm. uh, is the key translation point. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter which industry your listeners are in. It's understanding those basic principles and then executing them again and again. And that's what I try to teach, and I love teaching that. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've got the scars to prove it. But it is learning to deal with your setbacks, as you started off with your first question, as well as your successes that determine your future. And I'd actually argue it was the setbacks is when Cisco broke away from our competitors. And people sometimes, they've accused me of being dreaming too big or trying to do too many things. And part of that criticism may have been fair, but carefully I'd probably disagree with them. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd dream more, and I wish I'd tried to stretch even more and set stretch goals and done more things, and I'm doing that now with my startups on everything from ag tech and solving world hunger to security Mm -hmm. to drone security type of capability to customer experiences, and I'm having the time of my life doing it. If you don't mind, I'm going to ask you two more questions. The first one is, what is JC2 Ventures? JC2 Ventures, I I had the honor of my son who came out of Walmart.com and Netflix and and House, they really hot startup in Silicon Valley joined me in terms of my current approach. And it's an organization with only three people, and we're going to try to become the first billion-dollar company with less than 10 people. We'll see (laughs) if we can do it or not. But it really is a spatial purpose-driven firm that focuses on being a strategic partner with startups, a mentor, a coach, an advisor, and how do you grow that and how do you help them operationalize and scale And this may surprise you. I'm trying to change the world one more time. Mm -hmm. We in the U.S. think we're the leading innovation country in the world and that we're a startup country in the world, and that's no longer true. Mm -hmm. Our startups are near a 20-year low. Our number of IPOs on the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange is barely going to go above 200 this year, which is an improvement over the last two years. But when you're generating 25, 30 million jobs a decade like we were in the 90s as a country, the number of IPOs were more in the four or 500 every year and the top years were 700. And other countries around the world, even France, their number of startups venture-backed are up 5x in the last four years at a time that ours is actually decreasing. Mm -hmm. So there's no entitlement in this new world. So I'm trying with JC2 Ventures to get startups, which I'm deliberately spreading across the whole country. And I have startups in Silicon Valley, startups in Arizona, startups in Georgia, startups in Texas, startups in New York, and I plan to expand them into India, et cetera. It can be an example where all of America gets to participate in this technology evolution and try to be a role model for that occurs. And I think that's the most important thing happening in terms of future job creation and so that Americans have a chance for their children to have a better life than they did and their children to have a better life than their parents, which many Americans now believe is no longer in their grasp. I think the answer to this is startups and a startup nation and innovation nation once again. So what JC2 Ventures is about, spatial purpose and focus, I'm focused on growing the job creation engine of the investments that we make and the time we make with them being their advisors at 40% per year Mm -hmm. in job creation. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm measuring job creation, and you know what I'm doing there, Dave. That means your revenues have to be over 50% to support that. Sure. And I'm a dreamer, but I like to try to make dreams come true. I'm ambitious and try to do things that others have not done. And I believe in empowering and teaching people regardless of their age, and I constantly learn every day, and I learn from you today. We talked about that earlier in the session in each approach. So that's what JC2 Ventures is about, trying to change the world in our own small fashion one time again. And before your listeners say, well, wait a minute, that's too ambitious, I had the honor to do that with President Macron in France. Mm -hmm. took France from the last place in the world to do business in startups just three and a half years ago and to the number one startup engine in Europe. And I called that three and a half years ago, Mm -hmm. did a strategic partnership with the state of France, was the champion about how to do this and be involved, and I'm now there global high-tech ambassador for the world Mm -hmm. that Macron created. And I'm doing the same thing with Modi, Prime Minister Modi, an amazing leader in India in terms of a startup India and a digital India in terms of the approach. So you outline a vision as a leader. You make it very ambitious. You stretch yourself and your team. You say how you're going to do it differently than others. You prioritize within that. You deal with the problems and setbacks and criticism along the way and always listen to the criticism because there will always be elements of truth in it. And then you've got to have the courage to deal with your challenges and then perhaps make a difference. That's what leadership is about, and that's a little bit what being a parent is about, too. We here at the American Management Association, we like to think that our noble cause is being that go-to resource for people who are just stepping up to a management role or aspiring to leadership. What's in this book for a new manager or an aspiring leader? Uh, The answer is everything in there is, is applicable to a leader of a small group or a large group. And I think it starts with the most important thing, a very clear vision of what you want to accomplish as a new manager. And realize that what made you great as an individual contributor may actually slow you down as a manager. So the first thing is you've got to have a vision of what you're trying to accomplish with your team, even if your team is only two people or if it's ten people. You've got to articulate what that is in simple terms they understand. You've got to, just like a coach, build a good team around you. And then you can no longer do it yourself. You can teach people through example, but then you've got to empower them. And then you've got to learn how to give constructive feedback, because that's part of your job, too, in a way that gets the desired outcomes. And you've got to set goals that are achievable, that stretch your organization. And so all of these practices, whether it's culture or prioritizing your time, become key. And that might be a very good one to end on. We talked about the importance of culture and people underestimating that. But one of the first questions I get, and I think it's in Chapter 11, is the questions that young entrepreneurs ask me are remarkably similar, whether I'm in Texas or California or New York or Indiana or Dubai or New Delhi, is how do you spend your time? And one thing a new manager I would encourage your listeners to do is write down how they think they should spend their time, rough percentages, and then briefly at the end of the day just jot down how do you spend your time and consolidate it. Mm What will happen, it will shock you. Mm-hmm. And you won't spend your time where you think you should have. And if you don't periodically visit that, you can fall into the trap that gets you and causes you to fail as a manager and not spending the time in ways that are really going to get the outcome you want. And before anybody gets discouraged, I did that every year I was at Cisco. And every year I didn't do as good a job as I wanted to on putting my time where I said I was going to. But it caused me to always course correct and go back not to spend time on just things that were broken or things I enjoyed, but the right balance to achieve the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And then one more piece of advice for your young leaders that might surprise you, 
one of the best pieces of advice I got from a large law firm and a lawyer who was retiring at the firm that bought $15 million of my gear when I said, Wang, I said, teach me one lesson. And we were walking by a bathroom, and he said, John, whenever you walk by a bathroom, take time to go inside. <laughs> he said, it'll become more important to you as you get older. Yeah, yeah. First, I was disappointed in the answer, and we both laughed. And then I walked about 15 steps, and I had it. And he said, did you get what I just told you? Yeah. I said, yes, I did. When you finish a meeting, summarize the meeting, and take the action items. Then as you go into your next meeting, get any pressures off your mind that you have and get prepared for the next meeting. And that includes stopping in the bathroom. It will allow you to summarize where people can't interrupt you as much. Mm -hmm. Then you can get ready for the next meeting. Then you walk into the next meeting, and you start at crisp, with your objectives, not thinking about what just occurred in the last meeting or that you've got pressures to call home or go to the bathroom in this one. Get that resolved ahead of time. And while that sounds basic, it was one of the best pieces of advice I've ever had. So connecting the dots about leadership, and don't forget to go to the bathroom. John, this has been amazing. I can check this off my bucket list now. It's so great to finally talk to you. Best of luck with the book. We've been speaking to John Chambers, Chairman Emeritus of Cisco and author of Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. Thank you so much, John. Dave, it's my pleasure. AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 